sweat pouring off their brows, their cheeks red with the effort of it. Can you hear my dog barking in the background? She's having a dream. I'll wake her up and come back. Sorry. Please join us in giving special thanks to our patrons. Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket and Selena Vokenhauer. With their support, we can keep on bringing you these stories. You're listening to Lore and Legend, tales from our mythic past. Hello and welcome. This is Rick Scott, and here on the podcast, I'm bringing you legendary tales that are inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. We're hearing a story today from Kirsten Millican, a Scottish storyteller specialising in myths, legends and folk tales from the Norse and Celtic nations. Recently, Kirsten worked alongside another storyteller to create Traces of Her, a goddess story project, an evening of stories that explores the traces of the divine feminine in myths, legends, folk and fairy tales, and asks what female archetypes have to teach us about the solutions to environmental and social crises that afflict us today. Through folklore, mythology and heritage, Kirsten explores stories of hope, stories for healing, and stories that speak to the human heart. We'll explore all of these topics and more with Kirsten soon, but first she's going to tell us the Norse story of why the sea is salt. This is a story about a quernstone. Now I'm sure you know what a quernstone is. It's a very old stone tool that's made of one piece of stone that sits on top of another piece of stone and you use it for grinding grain and all sorts of other things but our story doesn't start with the quernstone it starts with a king from Denmark whose name was Frodi and once something really interesting was found on Frodi's land it was a quernstone but it wasn't like any quernstone he had ever seen before for it was much bigger It was bigger than a bucket. It was bigger than a stool. It was bigger than a person. It was enormous. And this quernstone was so big and so heavy that Frodi couldn't turn it. His strongest warriors couldn't turn it. Even if you hitched a horse up to the handle of the stone, the horses couldn't turn it. And this really bothered Frodi. For a while, he would just sit and stare at it, wondering who on earth was big and strong enough to turn this quenstone. But after a while, it sat at the back of the hall and just began gathering dust. And Frodi had nearly forgotten all about it. So one day he was visiting a friend, a king of Sweden, the neighbouring kingdom. And as they were walking around the king's lands, Frodi noticed that the king of Sweden had in his service two bondmaids, two slave women who were huge, enormous giants of women with big bulging muscles, so big that Frodi wondered to himself, perhaps those two women were descended from the Jotun, 
the giant folk like cousins of the Norse gods. Then Frodi asked his friend, he thought, do you, do you think I could buy those two bond maidens for you, from you? Of course, of course, said his friend. So Frodi loaded up the two women onto his boat and sailed away to Denmark. Now, when he took them to the hall, he asked the two women whose names were Fenya and Menya, do you think you could turn this quernstone? And when they looked at it, he thought he saw a little glimmer, a little flame of recognition in their eyes as they looked at it. He said, do you think you could turn this stone? Yes, they said. But you know, that is no ordinary quernstone. That is a magical quernstone. And that quernstone will grind out absolutely anything in all the world that you could possibly want. Wow, thought Frodi, a magical quernstone. What a thing. What in all the worlds could I ask for? He thought a moment. He said, wealth. Grind me wealth. I want to be the richest person in all the worlds. Do you think you could grind that? Yes, said Fenya and Menya. And as soon as they started turning the handle of the quernstone out from the place where the flower normally came, came wealth, silver, gold, jewels, all the finest thing in all the worlds. And Frodi was so happy. There was so much of it. He filled up his pockets. He began filling up buckets. He called in his family. They filled up chests. There was so much wealth, so much gold, so much silver that they buried huge piles of it under the ground where it would be safe from raiders. Soon they began giving it away for, you know, a king who gives away gifts is the best king of all. And people flocked from all over the world to join Frodi's service for he was known as such a good king. And Denmark became the richest kingdom in all the world. And that was a truly wonderful time. But Frodi he soon began to grow a bit bored. For you know, when you have a magical quernstone that grinds out all the things that you could possibly want in all the world and you have all the wealth that you could possibly need, well, everything that he could buy was hollow. So he went again to Fenya and Menya thinking he could ask them for something more, something better, surely. Hi, ladies, he said, walking into the hall, and there they were, sweat pouring off their brows. They paused for a moment, the gold stopped pouring out. Frodi said, thanks for grinding all this wealth, it's been absolutely wonderful, but do you think you could grind me something else now? Grind me happiness, contentedness, joy, goodwill, peace. Grind me peace. Do you think you could do that? Yes, they said. So once again, they began heaving and pushing on the handle of the quernstone. And as soon as they did, out from the place where the flower normally comes, came peace. But what does peace look like? Nobody knows. So I just need you to imagine what it might look like. Maybe it looked like rainbows. Maybe it looked like stars. Maybe it looked like people smiling. I don't know, whatever it is. Imagine it filling up the hall. 
And when the hall was full of peace, the peace flowed out into the streets, into the village. And soon, everywhere, people, they, they stopped arguing. They put aside their differences. They patted one another on the back. They became friends. And when the village was full of peace, it flowed out and filled up all of Denmark. And when Denmark was full of peace, it overflowed and spilled into the whole world. And that, that was a truly wonderful time. For they call that time a whole year it lasted. They call it Frodi's peace. And for that whole year, everywhere, there was no war, there was no crime. And it was a truly wonderful time. But as with many stories, good things don't always last. Brody went again to see Fenya and Menya just to ask how they were doing. Hi, ladies, he said, walking into the hall. Just thought I'd come and see how you were, see how you're getting on, see, see if you need anything. Yes, actually, said Fenya and Menya stopping their turning for just a moment and turning to him. They had not had a break in all this time. A year and a half, they had been ceaselessly grinding out all the peace and all the gold. Their muscles and their bones ached. Their hands were red and raw and bloodied with the effort. We could do with a break, they said. Oh, I'm sorry. Brody said, I hadn't even thought that you would need that. Of course, of course you can have a break. Take a rest. You can have a break for as long as it takes to sing a song. Okay, see you later, ladies. Bye. And off he went. Well, Fenya and Menya were not very happy about that. As they sat down on the bench next to one another and looked deep into one another's eyes, they sang a song. They sang a song that they know very well. It is a song called Grotta Songer, and it is a song of battle. It's a song of bloodshed, of war, of tyranny, of death, of suffering, of pain. And when they finished singing that song and returned to the handle of the quernstone, peace was no longer in their minds. So as soon as they started turning the handle out from the place where the flower would normally come, came war. It filled up the room and flowed out into the streets. Everywhere before where there was peace and goodwill, there was, there was war and suffering. People quarreled. They fought one another. Brothers killed brothers. Children stole from their parents. It was dreadful. When Denmark was full of war, it overflowed and it spilled out into the whole world. The time of Frodi's peace was over. And in that chaos, those dark, terrible times, somebody came to Denmark, a Viking, a pirate king whose name was Mikinger, for he had heard of all of Frodi's wealth and he thought he'd take advantage of this chaos that now filled the world. So he invaded his crew sailed in. They swept off the boats into the streets, slaughtering everyone in the town. They burst into Frodi's hall. They killed Frodi and his family. And when all the killing was done, they took his gold. They loaded it up onto the ships. When Meekinger came to the room where Fenya and Menya still turned 
the handle of the crown stone, he asked, what's this all about, ladies? Tell me what this is that you're doing here. Well, this, they said, is a magical crown stone. I think I'll be having that as well, said Meekinger. So he loaded it up onto the boats and away they sailed. Away from Denmark, past England, up north along the coast of Scotland. And as they sailed, Meekinger sat on the deck of the ship, supping a big cup of ale. He said, okay, ladies, show me this crown stone. Show me how it works. Well, you just ask for anything, whatever it is in the whole world that you could possibly want, and we will grind it out for you. Anything, anything in all the world that I could possibly want, thought Meekinger. Well, not gold. I have enough gold already. I took all of Frodi's wealth. Something else, something valuable, something useful. Grind me salt. For salt in those days was very important for preserving food and it was worth an awful lot. Grind me salt. Okay, said Fenya and Menya. And as soon as they started turning the handle out from the place where the flour normally comes came salt, piles of salt, bucket loads of salt, barrel loads of salt. And Meekinger was so excited to see this fantastic new toy that he had. He just kept yelling more, more, more till soon the pile of salt on the deck of the ship grew larger and larger and heavier and heavier till it was so large that the boat sank deep down beneath the waves. Meekinger and all of his crew perished. They drowned in the cold North Sea as the boat sank all the way down to the bottom of the sea. But there were two on that boat who did not die. Benya and Menya. For they being Jutans, giant women. They're immortal, they cannot be killed here in our world. And so they sank down to the bottom of the sea with that crownstone. And because nobody ever told them to stop grinding, they are there still, to this day, grinding out salt. And they have been turning that crownstone for so long that it has turned the whole of the sea salty. And if you don't believe me, you can go to that place, that strip of water, the Pentland Firth, between Orkney and mainland Scotland, where there is a huge whirlpool caused by the water going into the hole on the top of the Quernstone. And that is the end of the story of why the sea is salt. Brilliant, thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry about the dog. That's all right. <laughs> Sometimes she, she can be a very noisy dreamer. So she's sleeping soundly, but she's obviously having a dream. Well, would you like to start by just sort of introducing yourself and telling us well, how, how you became a storyteller? My name is Kirsten Milligan. I'm a storyteller based in the southwest of Scotland. Um, and I got into storytelling a couple of years ago. So I've kind of always, um, or for a long time, I've uh, been aware of storytelling as an art form. 
and uh, something that I always kind of wanted to have a go at. But typically it was I always struggled, I think, to find the right time to pick up the skills. So I was quite happy to tell my friends and my family a story around the campfire or something like that. But then really kind of diving in and finding ways of telling stories well was the next step. And it wasn't until at the start of um, the first lockdown um, when Daniel Allison, who's my uh, storytelling coach, um, began offering uh, coaching and training. And um, when he posted that on his Facebook page that he was offering that, I jumped at the opportunity and got involved, signed up and absolutely loved it. And from then it's just been like opening one door after another and just following my nose and following my heart and seeing where it takes me. Excellent. You said that um, you were aware of storytelling as an art form. Uh, where did that kind of awareness come from? I think the first storytelling performance that I saw. So unlike, I suppose, in, in primary school growing up in Shetland, um, we were told the North stories by um, like youth workers and um, and school teachers and things like that. So I was aware of myths and legends and had hundreds of books, which I'm now rediscovering in my mum's loft that I actually had hundreds of books about myths and legends as a child. Um, so there was there was that kind of background interest in, in that sort of thing. And then as a, an adult, um, the first storytelling performance that I saw, which I think is you know a bit different to being told stories as a child, was at, uh, a music festival that I go to and have been going to for a really long time since I was about 16 years old um, in the southwest of Scotland is called Knock and Gorick. Um, and it's kind of a folk festival, but um, you know, it's a big mixture of lots of different things, kind of all of Scotland's weirdest and wonderful people gathering in a field together for a weekend um, of enjoying music. And they have a reconstruction of a, a kind of a Celtic style longhouse on site that over the years they've been gradually building to but uh, sorry building it up and up and it's become quite posh these days it's kind of fancy but I remember uh, decades ago it was it was kind of a little tumble of stones with a like a turf roof and there was a fire inside it and there were benches along the edges of the walls and there used to be a storyteller who um, would perform in there um, every he would do a show during the day and then he'd do a show in the evening as well and um, that was always my favorite part of going to that festival my friends um, often wanted to go and listen to the music and I was like see you later I'm off to go and watch some stories and um, I could sit and listen to that storyteller all day and all night um, and yeah it, I loved the way that he would uh, you could hear him telling the same story to a group of children during the day and all of them really really loving it and having a laugh and having a really good time and then he'd tell the same story to a group of adults in the evening and just a, a slight slightly different tone or emphasis on different aspects or elements of the story and he'd have all of them in stitches as well and um that that teller no longer tells there but um they're various other people would would tell stories there over the years and um yeah so i'd i'd just go every single time and listen and love and enjoy <laughs> that's great you got involved with uh dan's storytelling coaching um 
and uh, his online storytelling school. Um, when did you first see him performing? I think I, I first saw Daniel performing at, it was another festival, but it's not a music festival. It was a, a gathering. I don't believe that it's on anymore, but it was a, a gathering that for a few years ran um, again in the south of Scotland at a place called Whiston Lodge. And um, it was, um, the festival was called Nonstuff and it was a permaculture festival and it was about kind of degrowth and about reusing, um, recycle, reuse, all, all that sort of things and about finding different ways of, of living. And so it was a, a festival of workshops um, and they were really broad and really varied. Some of the, you know, there was your yoga and your Tai Chi and then there was permaculture and foraging and um, in the evening they well all during the day they had um, live musicians performing and then um, in the evening in the living room uh, Daniel did a storytelling set and he had he had lots of um, interesting musical instruments like a singing bowl and lovely jingly bells and I, I don't know what half of the instruments were but it was it was that was a really magical um, performance and I think that 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 was the first time that I saw him perform but then he also would tell that the other so the festival I mentioned earlier Knock and Gorick he would often tell there he kind of took up the mantle years later of being the main storyteller there and um, yeah so that's kind of how I got to know his work and got to know him. <laughs> Apart from just really enjoying it was there any particular reason why you kind of felt attracted to storytelling and I guess the role of you know of being a storyteller. Mm, yes, and I think this is this is something. Retrospectively, I think it's easy for me to look back at my own story and figure out what, like, put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together and realize, you know, what what are the different things that attract me to it. So, one element of it, I think, is. Um, when I was very young, one of the careers that I wanted to have was in medicine and healing. I wanted to be a, a doctor or a nurse and I wanted to help people. And at one point in my life, I did actually uh, study to become a nurse and I spent a bit of time at university kind of pursuing that, um, but decided in the end that it kind of wasn't for me. Um, I'd also previously worked in the care sector, care of the elderly, especially people with um, dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. <clears throat> And um, it's only now I think I, I can look back on that and realize that, that there's, there are many different ways to heal people, um, you know, and maybe sort of physical medicine and that sort of thing maybe wasn't the right choice for me, but maybe, you know, I think through stories, there are ways that we can kind of heal heal people's maybe emotional scars, um, you know, heal, heal people's souls. Um, and so I think there's an element of, of that desire that, that I, I want to use story as a way to kind of like help people help themselves. Um, so there's that element of it. Um, another side of it, I think, the role of the storyteller, I suppose, when another thing that I wanted to do when I was younger, I wanted to be when I was younger, was um, I kind of wanted to be a witch <laughs> when I was a child, when I was very young. And I think that the archetype or the idea of, you know, a wise woman is um, something that I've always felt very attracted to. And I think 
if you would ask some of my friends, I think that they would probably put me in that category. You know, I think um, I, I, I do sometimes feel a bit like a, a, a wisdom keeper. Even when I was quite young, people said I suited the kind of crone thing with my big cardigans and shawls and things like that. And um, so I think there's a lot, there's a lot of wisdom um, within stories. And um, I also have a real passion for history and archaeology. And I think uh, the role for me, the role of the storyteller and the really attractive role of or element of that role is um, that ability to kind of transmit the ancient wisdom, ancient knowledge, um, ancient culture, all of those things kind of being a, almost like a link in that chain of transmitting all of that knowledge, wisdom, etc., from the past onto the next generation. So kind of having a hand both in the past and linking that with the future that I think I, I really like. And that, I, that for me right now is the, the most important part of being a storyteller. And that's, that's what I find most attractive about the role. When you started taking those first steps, what were the first stories that you, uh, that you chose to tell? I believe the first story that I ever told, um, probably this was before I, I did the, before I started the, the coaching with Daniel. Um, the first story that I ever told was a story from the Shetland Islands, which is where I'm from. And it's a story about a Trowie wedding. So Trowies are, um, like kind of small fairy folks of the Shetland Isles. They're somewhere in between a troll, a Norse kind of troll and a sort of typical British um, or Scottish kind of fairy folk. And um, so that I believe was the first story that I told through that. Very quickly though, when I embarked on the, the training, uh, Daniel's Myth Singers program um, was, uh, Norse material. I'm, I'm, I love, I love Norse history. Um, I love the Viking Age history. Um, I love the Norse myths and that, that is a very, that's like a long running passion. That's something that I've been really interested in since I was a child. And, um, so I think starting the, the training kind of really, it gave me, it, it gave me a bit of motivation, I think, to really dive into the material a bit deeper than I'd ever been before and really start getting to grips with those stories. And they were, yeah, the Norse myths were the ones that I started telling first, probably. What are your favorite Norse stories then? Um, you know, are there any particularly uh, big and challenging ones that, uh, that you really uh, perhaps haven't got around to telling yet, but that you, you really want to get your teeth into? so many there are so many big challenging stories I think um so my favorite ones are um from the Norse mythological cycle um I love the I love the story about the birth the binding of Fenrir so Loki's three children Jormungandr, Hel and Fenris both the wolf that um comes back at Ragnarok and the story about the binding of, of Fenrir I find it's very it's a tragic tragic tale um, but to me lots of people believe that the the sort of descent 
towards Ragnarok begins later on in the cycle. It begins with the death of Baldur, um, Odin's son. But for me, I think it, it begins with the binding of Fenrir. And um, or it's kind of it's maybe the foreshadowing or the framing or the setup or something like that. But I think there's something uh, tragic, really, really tragic in that story about uh, the, the way that for, for anyone who's not heard it, essentially, um, I'll not spoil it. But yeah, it, it, to me, it's that's what kicks off the Ragnarok cycle. And um, so that's probably my favorite difficult ones the, the most challenging i think i've actually never told the story of ragnarok because i find it i find it a bit scary to be honest even when when i hear other people talking about ragnarok it actually gives me the shivers a little bit and um so i i think i'm, I'm not brave enough to take that on yet um and things that I want to work up to in the future. So I would love to write an epic poem about the binding of Fenrir, you know, like one of those typical, enormous, probably not 10,000 lines, but you know, I'd, I'd love to write uh, an epic poem about the binding of Fenrir. And I would really love to um, work a bit more with uh, the saga literature. So, um, I'm, I'm kind of familiar, like the, some of the stories from like the saga of the Walsons, for example, are ones that I've been working with a little bit and I've been kind of playing with and having fun. I've never told, I think you'd really struggle to tell something like that in a one but that would be a really fun project, I think, would be finding time to sit down and finding time and a group of people who want to dive into the sagas um, and spending maybe two days or I don't know how long it might take um, telling little bits of one of these big epic stories um maybe every evening and going really in depth and working um working with those stories in a lot of detail because there's so many really complex characters and themes and things like that in them so yeah i don't mm. know if that answers your question <laughs> it does and it sparks several more questions um <laughs> which uh Maybe quite difficult, but uh, I'm probably I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of them at once. So bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first the first thing that sort of comes to mind is like, um, do you think there's a you know you're interested in this Norse mythology? Do, is there a kinship? Do you think between the the Norse um, myth and folklore and sort of the the kind of Scottish folklore? What I'm thinking of is, I don't know, sort of like the bleakness and harshness of the landscape. Um, uh, you know, possibly some of the same sort of kind of mentality. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if you know, family and, and that kind of thing is, is another theme that comes up in both, both places. Uh, any thoughts mm -hmm. on that? <laughs> It's a difficult question and it's an interesting question because I think one of the things that, um, so we often categorize different, you know, mythologies and different legends and things like that into what we associate with like nations today, but those nations didn't really exist long ago. So um, there's, I think there's, there's definitely crossover. So in the past we had more, you know, ethnic groups who maybe lived in places that today we might call something like Norway or Scotland, 
but back then those those were different very very different and I think there's there has been a lot of like cross-pollination between different cultures and different storytelling traditions um it's interesting because there's there's a few so like one story in particular is a story from the saga of the Balsons, which there's like motifs in that story that occur also in the the Finn cycle so the the motif that I'm thinking of is when um when Sigurd slays the dragon Fafnir um he is cooking the dragon's heart um for his friend and um burns his thumb on on the dragon's heart and puts his thumb in his mouth and that exact same thing and oh sorry and when he puts his thumb in his mouth he can hear the language of the birds um so he is gains this infinite wisdom knowledge whatever um and that exact same thing happens in uh the story of finn mccool when he is roasting the salmon of knowledge for his friend and burns his thumb on on the cooking salmon and puts it in his mouth and gains wisdom and then whenever he, whenever he puts his thumb on his tooth he can access that wisdom and so there's there's definite definite cross-pollination and definite things that are similar and different i think places where it's really really obvious that like that crossover or where where the two cultures and the two folklores have really merged together are places like Shetland and Iceland. So in the Shetland Islands, which was one of the last parts of um, Scotland or one of the last parts of the British Isles to have been part of Norway, to be part of that kingdom of Norway, um, the, the folklore that exists in Shetland, like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the Trowies, who are these fantastic blend of somewhere between like a, a Scandinavian troll and and a Scottish fairy kind of person. Um, and they have a really similar thing in Iceland. The hidden folk there are, are again, they're kind of, they're a blend of um, sort of what you might call Celtic folklore with Norse folklore, because um, a lot of the population of Iceland were taken as slaves from Ireland by the Viking raiders. Um, and so I think places where you've got two cultures meeting that that kind of edge or that frontier that boundary where you've got two cultures meeting you get this wonderful really fascinating blend of the folklore and the storytelling traditions so i don't know if does that answer your question uh yeah it does i think you've, you've maybe given me a more technical answer whereas i was more talking about kind of uh whether they felt similar and whether that was part of the attraction mm. uh, but mm. uh still very relevant what you're saying because I mean that would uh explains why that might be the case <laughs> yeah and I guess like the the feeling I think one of the things that we lack in Scotland that I'm always quite sad about is we kind of lack a coherent mythology um we've got legends that you know have we share with places like Ireland, you know, we've got the, the Finn stories and, and things like that, but we kind of, we don't know about, you know, was there a, a pantheon of gods that were worshipped in, in Scotland? I, I don't know. 
um, because there's there's no manuscripts from that time. I think you know the Norse folks are quite lucky because um, Snorri Sturluson wrote down the Prose Edda in whenever it was um, 10th century, 11th century. So it meant that 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 history and that that was recorded. Feeling-wise, I think I think in some senses they're the same, and other senses they're different. So. I feel definitely the, the, the Norse cycle has, does have a, a grim, dark, tragic feeling to it, but then it also has, you know, enormous humor to it. There are some stories that are utterly, you know, ridiculous or end in a ridiculous way. Um, like when Loki ties a goat to his testicles and has a tug of war with it, you know, there's, 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 there's this, this really interesting balance of like darkness and humor that's kind of always going on in all of the Norse, um, the Norse myths. Um, uh, whereas I think the Scottish stories, because they're a bit more recent, we don't have that deep mythology. I'd say a lot of them are maybe a bit lighter hearted, but then I don't know, maybe, maybe to someone from even further south, they do still seem a bit dark and bleak. <laughs> You talked about kind of seeing the role of the storyteller, you know, maybe as you know, speaking into people's lives and hoping that can can bring sort of uh, some like reflection or or even healing into somebody else's experience. So, um, with that in mind, you know, what is it in um, in sort of in Scottish or Norse mythology that you feel makes it particularly powerful or suited to that because I guess you know uh, Ragnarok and um, the Norse gods is you know pretty pretty uh, heady stuff um, but can you sort of give some examples of where you know some of these stories have touched you or, or you hope that it can can touch somebody else? Yeah so I guess you know that's an important thing to say is I'm not only interested in the, the Norse stuff. Um, in the yeah, in the Scottish um, tales, there are there are some really fantastic, really touching. Be there's a lot of beauty, I think, and it most often I think it's manifested in interactions with the other world, with the fairy world. Um, and I recall telling a story recently at a, an absolute magical, beautiful, wonderful gig. Um, some people were um, on a course and they were, the, the theme of the course was about um, uh, de deceleration and about slowing down and connecting with one another, about connecting with the natural world. Um, and the aim of the course was that these uh, participants would kind of take that into their place of work when they went away. And I, I told them stories one evening um, with a musician and it was beautiful and it was really atmospheric. And the, one of the stories that I told was about um, people entering into the fairy world so that the queen of the fairies could, could uh, share their wisdom with people to help heal the world. And it just, it felt so appropriate. And that, that entire moment I think was really, really touching. Um, because that is what those people were at that course to consider and um, bringing that story to them and just seeing uh, seeing 
seeing them feel that, you know, feel that they were stepping into that role. They were sipping that cup that contained the fairy wisdom at that, that course, that experience. And yeah, so I think that's where I, I kind of see it most. And that's where I see a lot of the, yeah, the, the kind of the, the touching sort of healing messages is that idea that, that, um, that interaction with the other world and how do we learn from it and how do we, how do we bring that magic into our everyday Cool. Um, so with that kind of stuff in mind, then what, um, how, how do you see your, your career as a storyteller developing in future? You know, we, I mean, we talked about a few stories that you might want to do someday, but you know, what are your ambitions for, for, you know, projects that you might want to work on? I have so many goals I think, because, because I'm still, um, I suppose you would say I'm near the beginning of my storytelling career. Um, at the moment, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be quite open. I'm trying to experiment with lots of different things and um, follow my nose and follow my heart, see where, you know, what, what opens up, what unfolds, what, um, what calls my passion. And, um, but I do, there are a few things that I'm working on. One of the things I would like to do um, that a project I'm working on with a friend, a fellow storyteller who's based in Germany. Um, her name's Kat, she's lovely. Um, uh, we are developing a project together, which we call Traces of Her. And it's about looking at um, goddesses, women and feminine entities in different stories and what we can learn about the divine feminine from that. And we want to develop a series of, uh, or long term we want to develop some kind of um, retreats or workshops where people can work with story for personal development for personal growth and for transformation um, and yeah we want to combine stories with other other types of activities Kat is a wonderful workshop facilitator as well so she's got fantastic skills um, in that area and part of that, we're, we're, we're working on, um, yes, uh, we're, we're working on a series of performances that we're delivering online because we're not based in the same place. So at the moment we're delivering them online, but hopefully one day we might be able to do them in person um, together. And we're also doing a workshop at the Storytelling Festival, Scottish Storytelling Festival um, this year. And long term, we would hope to do some sort of residential workshops, courses, training activities, something like that. What do you think your your best storytelling gig or experience has been so far? The most powerful storytelling experience that I've had was I attended Martin Shaw's summer school um, in July. 2021 and it was extremely powerful um very uh, unexpected i think and beautiful i um i was very very inspired to see the 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 way that he works with stories and audience and the way that he can um build up a certain 
atmosphere, a certain tension, a certain emotion, and then almost um, dispel it. So he he has he has this wonderful, beautiful power of balancing or playing with um, very serious material and very serious emotions and lighthearted kind of humor and kind of juggling that wonderful that wonderful balance and playing with that line um in a really really powerful way uh, you know i mean i saw people break down in tears um but at the same time we all you know everybody who was there you know really enjoyed it and seeing the seeing the the, the power of of the stories to really touch people um was extremely inspiring um, and as somebody who's sort of in those early stages of your own storytelling experience, what do you think is the most kind of valuable thing for helping, uh, you know, sort of inspiring your own storytelling and or helping you to develop as a storyteller? I think for me, the most important thing is remembering to have fun and remembering to play all the time. And, and also, but, but doing that in a way that I think has a, a lot of respect and a lot of reverence for the, the traditions, the storytelling traditions. You know, I talk about being a, you know, almost a link in a chain. And there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of power or there's there's a lot of weight to carry, I think is maybe the best way to describe it. I think if you're carrying stories and transmitting them from you know one generation to another generation, there's there's a lot of weight to bear there. But there's also um there's also a lot of magic and a lot of fun in it. And I think you know being able to take my dog out for a walk and tell a story to the land um or you know sit with a group of children and you know tell them a story and have fun and play and make it really exciting for them and then maybe take that same story to a group of people who are you know need some healing they need some soul medicine they want to do some personal transformation themselves you know and so it's that i think that balance of respect and reverence with play and fun and so that you're capable of bearing the weight of carrying the stories but not letting it wear you down because you're always still having fun with it. You've been listening to Why the Sea is Salt, a guest episode of Law and Legend with storyteller Kirsten Milliken. If you want to follow Kirsten's work, you can follow her and fellow storyteller Catriona as performance duo The Hedge Sisters through their page on Facebook. The link is there for you to follow in the episode show notes. The lore and legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentel with additional music from Sekilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. To find out more about episodes of Law and Legend, you can visit www.lawandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts. If you like what you hear and you'd love to hear more, please consider donating to the podcast to support our various financial needs and obligations. 
If you visit our website and click on support us, you can find out everything you need to help us to keep creating this show that you love listening to. Thanks once again, and do stay safe out there in all of your various endeavors, story folk. Thank you.